today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, will we finally see all-day go service in Hamilton? Questions about the new commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police and more bad news for Donald Trump as Michael Flynn turned out to be a very helpful witness in the Russia investigation. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. A couple of things going on in the downtown area here that I want to touch on. Uh, Metrolink's president says that the West Harbor Station, which was built just a couple of years ago, will be targeted for all-day go service. That's great news. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And that's kind of the same news we've had for the last little while. Also, uh, Hamilton's overdose prevention site uh, gets a bit of an extension and hopefully uh, a more permanent location. Uh, both of these are happening in uh, Ward 2 downtown. Jason Fires, the counselor for that area. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed. Thanks, Jay, for the time. Good to have you with us again. No problem, Bill. Good to be back. All right, let me, let me first of all talk about the, the Metrolink situation. We have been asking for all-day go service for, I guess, about 25 years now, 30 years. Uh, and uh, the previous government said, yeah, we're going to do that. The station was constructed, and everybody is waiting. And I hope nobody's holding their breath, because I don't know when this is going to happen. Uh, right, and uh, it's been uh, sort of bittersweet announcements since uh, 2015, really, because 2015 was the year uh, that Dalton McGinty said we'd be up and running with uh, the extended all-day service. And so, uh, you know, what you have witnessed and we've all witnessed uh uh, since and even before that is an influx of uh, commuters who chose Hamilton uh, as their home, particularly the downtown. And uh, all-day go service was uh, a, a large part for many of them, I'm sure. Well, sure, because some, some of them are inhabiting those condos that were constructed down there. Many are, and, uh, and, and uh, more than anything, I'm sure they're paying close attention to uh, today's News and uh, you know it's it's become a bit repetitive, but uh, you know I I, I have to uh, always look at the uh, issues with glass half full, and uh, when they say uh, we'll know more in early 2019, then uh, I'll look forward to the uh, the announcement and hopefully a solid date that sees at the very least for downtown Hamilton that West Harbor Go Station seeing much more action than the two trips in the morning and the two in the afternoon. Bill. Well, your point's well taken. I mean, when a new government comes in, and we've seen this happen with some of the other policies that were in place by the other government, uh, they do have the option of saying, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. So they haven't said that. So I guess that's good news. That's the glasses half full attitude. But Absolutely. And when you consider that it was uh, the Wynn government, McGinty government uh, prior to Ford, who uh, makes no bones about it, he's not happy with a lot of what his uh, uh, previous governments have done. It, it is at least uh, reassuring to see that that move Ontario plan uh, is important to him in, in many aspects anyway. Jay, the other element that has to get worked on here, and, and I know there's a great deal of consternation about this, is we have two GO stations here. Uh, there's the Hunter Street station, of course, the old THMB station, uh, and of course the one down there in the West Harbor. Uh, the story that we got from uh, Queen's Park today, from Metrolinks rather, is that they're going to be using the West Harbor location, uh, which begs the question, what happens to Hunter Street? I mean, if there's not going to be service into that station, that uh, I don't want to say it becomes redundant, but there's a problem there. We don't need two, do we? Well, for now, what I'm reading is that we continue to operate the two. The focus has shifted. It wasn't long ago that it was uh, the downtown station just off Hunter Street that uh, folks were talking about seeing more action, which uh, that was the last announcement. The announcement previous and during the construction of the West Harbor station was just the opposite. The West Harbor would see uh, the, the bulk of the action and the downtown station would uh, be limited. Uh, I'm still hearing that it's both, but we've shifted more focus now and more trains 
uh, with this latest Metrolinx announcement to the West Harbor. So it's kind of been a, a back and forth, but neither one has ever been completely out of play, at least uh, until now, I, I, and up until now. So I, I don't know what the intentions will be. And Bill, as you're aware, you know, we've got a limited track uh, space and we're sharing with CP, with the downtown, we're sharing with CN, uh, the West Harbor Station. And so obviously they have a role to play, a major stakeholder and all these negotiations that continue to happen quite obviously are with uh you know the real estate owners which are the the big railroads in this case so we're sort of at uh, at their mercy in some respects now the the city doesn't necessarily sit at the negotiating table but Metrolinx has been at it for some years representing the province yeah well we could uh, carry that argument down to the tiffany lines too every time you're dealing with cn and cp it's always been of a bit of a problem the, the only the sore point I always have about this is I, I think they've done a wonderful retrofit on, on that station on Hunter Street. But it, it's got to be, Jay, the only only go station in southern Ontario that doesn't have parking. And and that's going to be problematic. I think if you have that, you just go past the Oakville stations or the Burlington stations, and you see I think a lot more people would take advantage of that train if all of a sudden they knew that they could get there and leave their car there. Yeah, well, West Harbor has, I, I'm not sure, there's a number of spots. There's a couple of hundred. I mean... West Harbor Station is complete, including parking. It's a linear stretch. It isn't quite the the magnitude of parking that you see from Lakeshore all the way down to T.O. and beyond. But uh, there there are a number of spots. That parking lot below uh, and to the west, for the most part of our of our West Harbor Go Station, is very rarely full. Which and and yet those trains do see the two that do run each and every morning and return. I think the departure time for the first one is five fifteen from. Uh, from uh, Toronto, uh, a lot of the passengers are, are walking. I mean, and, and that's exactly what, you know, the whole Move Ontario plan, what our plans, the sustainable and mobility here in the city is all about. So it's it's really the, the parking lot to date, but only for two trains, Bill, which is the, you know, the paradox here, it isn't necessarily uh, at full capacity. Will we need more? Will we need a, a parking garage in the area? Hey, there's been Two development meetings in uh, recent weeks uh, uh, in and around that West Harbor GO station where, where folks are pitching uh, densities, uh, where neighbors are concerned, and, 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 and rightly so, which is why we have these uh, meetings, on a number of different issues related to development. And guess what always stands out uh, amongst the concerns or what you hear about the most, and that's parking. So the parking is an issue in the neighborhood, but it's not like that West Harbor GO station didn't have uh, parking contemplated and actually built. I mean, it's like getting a, a, a new car for Christmas, but you don't get the keys. We've been looking at that thing and, and not been able to use it to full utilization uh, to, to this point. So at least hearing something today, I think myself, you, a lot of your listeners, and especially those in near proximity who maybe made some pretty significant investments, who, who moved their families uh, and decided they're going to get Hamilton, a try. They loved Supercrawl. They bought a house and they love that idea of being able to be connected on a half hourly or hourly basis. And what we're hearing today with the West Harbor Go Station uh, as a, a huge carrot. So, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think glass half full. We've been talking about this and hearing different announcements for, like you say, several years now. It's been in the making for at least a couple of decades. So it was great to see, you know, the city got involved with the the promenade and the public art, and, and we were partners in the building of the West Harbor Go Station. The design likely would be an award winner in terms of architecture. We were creative and thought outside the box with this linear parking. It's a bit of a walk if it's 
it's you know near Queen Street that you find a spot uh, when things really do get up and running and get very busy. But but ev- all the pieces are in place. There's everything but regular service in terms of all day go. And and when that happens, I, I'm I'm just telling you, and I'm sure you're aware of this already. Parking is going to be an issue. And, and I don't yeah. dis- I don't discount what you're saying. I'm sure there are some people in the immediate neighborhood that walk to the station. Of course there are. But I, most of the people I know that have to commute to Toronto every day drive to Burlington, leave their car there and take the train to Toronto, get back in their car at the end of the day and have to make that drive from Burlington, the GO station, back into Hamilton. That's why you get gridlock on that section of the 403. Right. And I mean, and again, but the big part of that move Ontario plan, and particularly when it comes to stations right in the heart of the urban centers, is they're trying to encourage, get leave your car, you know, uh, use this higher order transit, the whole connectivity of the Move Ontario uh, plan uh, didn't necessarily contemplate, at least for downtown Hamilton, automobile. But, uh, Bill, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. There are going to be a a large number of commuters that still want that convenience, that still want to take their car to the train station, and then their commute, higher-order commute begins there. So, and, 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 hey, there's, there's, like I've told you in the past, parking is the number one most prevalent issue I deal with on a day-to-day basis. Maybe not the most heady issue, but uh, everything from not enough on street, the time limits need to change, neighbors getting together with petitions to change regulations, all because of this lack of parking. Parking is, you know, something where we continue to try with our transportation master plan, with all of our uh, sustainable mobility initiatives, particularly in our urban centers or along that beeline, the inner city, uh, even across the city with the city with our transportation master plan, we're trying to encourage higher order. We're trying to encourage less people to rely on their cars, even commuting and smart commute in the programs that we have there. The reality is there are still going to be folks wanting and needing, they'll tell you, their, their automobile. And so we constantly have to be looking at this parking situation. And it's not exclusive to the West Harbor area as it relates to downtown. Oh, no, not at all. Right. Right. Our downtown parking is a prevalent issue. All right, we got a couple of minutes left. I want to touch yeah. on this uh, safe injection site, the overdose prevention site. Uh, it's, of course, the, speaking of uh, transportation, it's the old bus station, of course, uh, yeah. where they're located down there. They got a stay of execution. They were funded only till the end of November. Now it's going to be till the end of January. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is is that we have to apply now. There's only going to be 21 sites in the whole province, and uh, we, we're hoping that Hamilton's one of them. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, again, I, I'd say. The Ford government and the Ministry of Health, Christine Elliott, uh, leading that ministry, are, are kind of walking the talk. They did say that they wanted to take more time, uh, understand the issues, study uh, the, the, the benefits and, and the challenges of safe injection sites, uh, reimagine uh, how safe injection sites uh, uh, work with an even greater focus on rehabilitation and uh, trying to help those who have these serious health issues. Uh, and so they, they're, they're, this is a sign that they're taking more time. They're extending the safe injection site that is in our core, which is the epicenter, unfortunately, of uh, the overdose crisis that we have in our city, which, as you and I have talked about in the past, 72% above the provincial average. I think uh, looking at that alone, that, that, that horrifying statistic, uh, it was pretty much a no-brainer for the provincial government to allow this extension which gives Denise Brooks, the CEO, and the volunteers and all of the people, the doctors that uh, make this, what I see is so far a successful safe consumption or safe injection site at the former bus station, uh, a success. gives them more time to complete those applications. It's, not, it's, it's tricky business. There's a lot to those applications. But uh, they seem uh, positive about uh, 
being able to accomplish that. And uh, certainly, statistically, we're seeing more and more use, more and more people feeling comfortable. And they're integrating better, too, with the Beasley neighborhood. They're, there's obviously all sorts of challenges that can, can crop up because this is something new. But like I've said to you many times in the past and others, uh, you know, we were due for something new because uh, doing the same thing over and over again as it relates to this overdose crisis in the city is the definition of, of insanity. And so I- I'm feeling pretty good that uh, they can find another site. Of course, Urban Core is the uh, main proponent. They're working with different uh, partners there, the, the, the Social Health Network, Good Shepherd. Uh, they themselves are building a new facility near uh, Cannon and uh, Wentworth. Obviously, that's not going to be, I don't even think the shovels are in the ground yet, but it's imminent, but certainly wouldn't be ready by the end of January 2019. But they are among a couple of others who are currently going after a more permanent uh, solution uh, with respect to these applications as we speak. Well, and like I said, we've got concerns about the, the number in the province, 21, but they, they may rethink that too as time goes on. That's the, just the initial announcement. But And, and I was going to ask you about location because the, 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 site, the site there at John and Rebecca is not sustainable. Is it for the, the, for the long term? No, you know, a development application was submitted about a year ago and approved just nearing the end of uh, uh, this term, I think at our last or the second to last planning committee meeting for a 30-story uh, condominium development. And it wasn't even appealed. It was uh, uh, well uh, publicized in a lot of community meetings leading up to the actual public meeting, the planning committee meeting. So that site is owned by someone else. That owner already has done a long way in the planning of a, of a condominium site that works uh, in conjunction with and contiguous with the new John Rebecca Park. So that that area in the coming, I would say, year, Bill, it's, it's probably fall of 2019 if all of the site plans and everything works out, engineering and so forth, uh, will be ready. And at, at that point, too, we'll have completed our first phase and the biggest phase of the John Rebecca Park. So there's a huge transformation coming within the year in that area. Uh, and like I say, Urban Core, who now manages the safe consumption site, along with, by the way, we keep overlooking all the other wonderful services that they have provided for decades now in the heart of our city. They're, they're already uh, funded by the Lins for a new build over at Wentworth and Cannon. So they're already on the move. What they're applying for now is, is what I would suggest is probably an interim site until such time as the yeah. Wentworth yeah. Cannon location is complete. And, and that's the concern, obviously. We're going to have to have that debate about an interim site, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, Jason Farr, the Council for Ward 2. Jay, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure, and I'll see you and the CHML gang and thousands of others on Friday night for the lighting of the Christmas tree of hope. Looking forward to it, Bill. As am I so much, uh, all, as we do every year. Thanks again, Jason Farr from uh, Ward 2. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Questions are being raised in regards to the appointment of the new commissioner for the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, The Ontario government and the premier say that he had nothing to do, no hand at all in appointing Ron Taverner to this job. Uh, Taverner, though, does happen to be a close friend of the Ford family and has been a frequent visitor uh, to uh, the Ford barbecues that they have, has taken trips uh, with Doug Ford. Uh, so there's, uh, there's that tie, obviously. Uh, a couple of other things about the hiring process, notwithstanding the uh, insistence by the Premier that it was a, ha- a hands-length, arms-length process that he had nothing to do with. Uh, it had to do with lowering the qualifications in order, they said, to attract a wider range of candidates. Uh, well, something's fishy here. The opposition parties are upset about this, and so are another other groups, watchdog groups, including uh, Democracy Watch and uh, Duff 
Conacher, who is, of course, the uh, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Def, thanks for the time. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. I know, I know this, is, uh, this is the Premier again saying, nothing to see here, move on, move on. Uh, but I think some questions need to be answered. Yes, very much so. There's four big questions to be answered. First of all, uh, the government has just said they changed the uh, job description so that uh, Mr. Tavener would be qualified. Well, who is they? And um, who wrote the job description in the first place? Um, who chose the executive search firm? Did they give them any directions? Who And uh, then for the selection committee um, that uh, came reviewed the candidates that the search firm came up with. We know that one of the three members of that committee was appointed by Doug Ford and serves at his pleasure and was just appointed last month. That's Mario Di Tommaso, mm-hmm. who's Tavener's former boss. So lots of questions about conflicts of interest there. And then uh, we do also know, because Doug Ford admitted it yesterday, that he was at the cabinet table for the final approval, and Democracy Watch's position is that's a violation. It says right in the act you can't take part in a decision where you could further your own interests or improperly further another person's interests. And, of course, it's improper to be sitting there uh, at a cabinet table handing your friend a job. The original job posting uh, required interested candidates to hold, at minimum, the position of deputy chief or assistant commissioner. Two days later, they changed that. Uh, Is that because nobody applied? Is it because they didn't like the candidates? Had they already vetted anybody that did apply? I mean, th- why would they change that two days later? I know, and they say it was to broaden the uh, candidates, but after two days, you wouldn't even know. Whether, I mean, Well, exactly. Usually job postings are up for at least 30 days, if not two months, and then you see what kind of pool you have, when, especially for a job like commissioner, right? It's not like you're going to say, oh, if you don't apply in the next two days, sorry, we won't review your, your uh, application. So... Uh, it's a very suspicious decision, and uh, you said it the way the government's saying it. Uh, they changed it. Uh, the government's claimed that it was at the request of the executive search firm. Um, the search firm is not commenting because of confidentiality. Well, the integrity commissioner has the power to subpoena witnesses, subpoena documents, uh, all the emails, BlackBerry pins, phone logs of everyone involved should be looked at by the integrity commissioner. and. They have the power to, to get to the bottom of what actually happened and what was communicated by whom, to whom, through the whole process. And if Premier Ford or anyone uh, acting for him became involved in the process, uh, then it's only going to worsen the violation that Democracy Watch thinks he's already made by being at the cabinet table for the final approval. Well, the number of questions you and I have talked about, even in the last five minutes here, I, I think uh, runs contrary to the Premier's assertion that this was a transparent process. Uh, it was absolutely not transparent. No, it wasn't. We only knew the members of the selection committee yes, uh, yesterday. Uh, the government wouldn't disclose them in the days previous. And... Uh, communications between them, well, that wasn't transparent, and the interview meetings weren't transparent, so who knows what went behind closed doors. It uh, all seems like, I mean, Doug Ford was at the cabinet table uh, for the final decision to give his friend, uh, close friend a job, the job of the top cop in the province. The, you know, it all seems like Doug Ford is not governing for the people, as he always claims, but governing for his people. And if you happen to be his people, well, lucky you. But if you're not his people, unlucky you. 
There's another side to this, too. And, of course, when he was questioned about this uh, at Queen's Park yesterday, he denied this, of course, and said he had absolutely nothing to do with this. But there is evidence already, Duff, about him and and his staff interfering in some of these government uh, 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 jobs. Actually, they're not really government jobs because they're all supposed to be arm's length. Uh, we all know that the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail have reported that the Premier is, uh, is getting very finicky and actually getting very hands-on about the appointments uh, to the uh, Hydro Board, Hydro One Board. Of course, he fired all those people and uh, seems to be involved in that, and he's not supposed to be. And we already know very strong rumors, of course, about his chief of staff that's uh, interfering with uh, the, well, the firing of the, uh, the head of the OPG. Yes, and also uh, urging staff to call the, the police the day that cannabis uh, became illegal and, and saying, um, according to these sources, which are Conservative Party staffers, uh, that they wanted arrests on the news by noon that day. Well, if you don't have a separation between the cabinet, the top politicians, and the top cops in the province or in any city, then you have a police state. You don't have a democracy. <laughs> these decisions by the police cannot be made politically. If they are, then you, you don't have a democracy. You have a very, very serious, bad situation. And that's why it's such a serious situation uh, with these questions about whether Doug Ford or anyone acting on his behalf tried to influence this choice of the top cop in the province and, and, ins- and in any way tried to ensure that the job went to his close friend. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know, the opposition parties are upset about this, and, and as you should be, but I, I, I know at Queen's Park some people are just dismissive and say, yeah, well, they're always they're opposed to everything. But, but this is, there's, a, there's an ethical question at play here, a number of ethical questions at play here. Very much so, and thankfully the Integrity Commissioner uh, isn't required to investigate, but it would be really outrageous if the Integrity Commissioner said he wouldn't. Um, and he has full powers uh, to investigate. Can subpoena witnesses require all documents to be disclosed by the government. He has the power of a public inquiry uh, when he wants to use those powers, and he should, because it's the only way to know the truth, is to get all the emails, all the BlackBerry messages, if there are any any uh, phone logs, interview everybody and uh, separately, and just find out uh, exactly what went on as much as we can in these situations. If everyone circles the wagons and protects Premier Ford, uh, and claims that uh, that uh, he didn't try to influence the process at all, and they're covering something up, it's going to be difficult to for uh, anyone to find out that. But uh, hopefully they'll be forthright and turn over all the documents and all the communication logs, and uh, we'll be able to see. For, uh, Doug, Doug Ford has already admitted that he told the selection committee, I don't want to be involved in any way. So he obviously communicated with them. Well, is that claim that he makes true? Or did he communicate something else to them? We know he communicated with them, so there must be some sort of a log and record of that communication. So hopefully the Integrity Commissioner will do his job uh, very well in terms of this investigation and use his full inquiry powers to get all the information needed so that we get as close to the truth as possible. Here's a question. <laughs> These keep popping up. Uh, Ford's statement that he he told the committee he didn't want to be involved in this. Did he make that statement uh, or make that uh, statement to the committee before or after they changed the qualifications? Exactly. I mean, if it was after, it kind of looks like, well, my guy's eligible now, so you guys do what you need to do. Yeah, and then and then Mario Di Tommaso is sitting there, who's just been appointed by Ford and serving at his pleasure. And in, keep, in case people don't understand that, deputy ministers serve at the pleasure of the cabinet and can be fired at any time for any reason. And he's Ron Tavener's former boss. And when he was appointed by Ford in October, 
the media reported uh, Ron Tavener saying he was a great choice. So I'm, I'm calling them the three musketeers, all for one and one for all, where Ford points to DiTomaso, DiTomaso helps Tavener get a job, Tavener applauds the, the appointment of DiTomaso, and Ford applauds them all. That's not how it's supposed to work in terms of government appointments of these very key positions of top cop in the province. And uh, as I say, we already know Ford was at the cabinet table for the final approval, and I, I think that's a violation because the law says you can't take part in any decision where you have an opportunity to further your own interest or improperly further another person's interest, and it's improper to, to be at the table handing your friend a job. That's pretty clear. That's, that's just straight-up bias and conflict of interest, and he was there at the table. What are the cabinet ministers going to do? Say no when Ford is sitting there? And Ford is the one who can demote them or, or fire them from cabinet at any time for any reason because they all serve at his pleasure as well. Which he's already done. Exactly. So this is a situation where everyone, in, people involved in every stage of the process, obviously the, the executive search firm is just looking for candidates, uh, but they're on contract with the government and they want another contract, so they're going to do whatever the government wants. Mario Di Tommaso is on the selection committee. He serves at the pleasure of Ford, and so do all the cabinet ministers. So everyone involved in the process, it's not transparent and independent like the government claims. It's people who are, have an incentive to please Ford. And, th- and that means they're, they're biased as well because they share Ford's conflict of interest uh, because they want to please him, and he wants to please his friend, obviously. Listen, and, and I know some people are going to say, well, this goes on in politics all the time, so what's the big deal? It does, and that's why we need to stop it. That's well, why exactly. Mark has had a campaign now for a few years to stop bad government appointments. The processes all need to be made transparent and merit-based and open and not rigged the way they are now. Well, and the short answer to that is, look at, because I've seen this on social media this morning, well, Kathleen Wynne appointed uh, her, her, uh, her partner's brother to some position. I can't remember which one it was, as a matter of fact. And, and, and okay, yeah, and there was a big furor about that, as there should have been. But the reality is, is this guy said, we're not going to do that anymore. How many exactly. times during the campaign did he say, you know, that we're not going to have government just so our friends can benefit from it? Well, what's he doing? Exactly, exactly. what he said he wouldn't do. Yeah. So um, the standard is higher for someone that makes that promise, but the standard is high in the law. Uh, You can't even have the appearance of bias. That's the standard when you're making these kind of appointments. And, of course, when it's a close friend, the appearance of bias is there. And, as I say, he he sees no problem at all with him being at the cabinet table with making that final decision. Well... He probably saw no problem with him intervening at any step in the way as well. And uh, that's what we need to find out. Did he intervene? All, all he has to have done is try to influence the process in any way. And if it's not him, if it was someone acting on his behalf, well, we have this concept of ministerial responsibility. You take responsibility for what you tell other people to do for you. You can't just hide behind them and say, they did it, not me not if they were acting at your direction in any way, shape, or form. So that's what the Integrity Commissioner has to look into, and uh, we'll find out uh, after the investigation um, whether there's a worse violation than Ford being at the Cabinet table for the final approval. The Toronto Star is reporting that uh, the Ontario PC government says it lowered the qualification requirements uh, for the position of OPP Commissioner, which begs the question, well, first of all, who's the leader of the uh, PC government? 
Uh, and if it, was it under his direction that they lowered the qualifications? No, indeed. And that's what we see through the whole government's explanation. They and it did all these things. Well, no, people do things. It's a don't do things. And they, well, that's someone specifically. And who is it? And uh, that's why we're, the kind of vague qu- answers we're getting and contradictory answers we're getting. And uh, that's why the Integrity Commissioner needs to look into this whole process. Well, you you got to ask questions. And, and, you know, when they set qualifications, and let's assume for a second it was the agency, this so, so, so-called arms-like agency uh, that set the, uh, the standard, uh, it sounds as if somebody read that standard and said, oh, no, 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 that's, and that way this guy t- can't even qualify. you got to change that. Yeah, it would have been a public posting. So anyone in the Premier's office or the Premier himself would have been able to see it. And uh, two days later, as you say, you started with this big question. You don't change something two days later. You, you wait. If you don't get any applicants after 30 days, then, yeah, okay, maybe you, you need to change it because you need to find someone to be the top cop in the province. But, but that's, two that's too tight a time no frame. Idea. Duff, I, I don't know if they still print this, but I know uh, I had some friends that used to work in the civil service at Queen's Park, and uh, there's a sheet that comes out every month about job postings and what's eligible. And it could be anything from an OPP commissioner to, to a clerk in somebody's office. And most of them, most of them have 30 to 60-day op- yes, windows. that's right. That's right. And Not so today. There's no way you would know after two days whether you have an adequate pool of candidates. It, and that's why it's such a suspicious decision. All right. What has to happen for the, uh, for the Integrity Commissioner to get involved? Well, we filed a complaint uh, yesterday morning, um, and that was actually before the news even broke about the job description being changed. And uh, the Integrity Commissioner, has his position is he can't investigate unless an MPP writes uh, a complaint to him. Uh, our position is he has the discretion to investigate based on a complaint from the public. But um, the NDP and the Liberals, uh, I think even Mike Schreiner, the, the Green, lone Green Party MPP, have all said that they will be filing written complaints. And, and then, uh, unfortunately, the commissioner is not required to investigate. It says may investigate when receiving a complaint from an MPP. But um, hopefully he will. It, there's so many questions he really has to. It would be outrageous if he didn't. And... Uh, and then how long he takes um, shouldn't take too long if the government cooperates and turns over all their communications uh, and everyone agrees to be interviewed. Otherwise, he's going to have to go to subpoenas, and those take time to file, and people may be fighting it uh, with lawyers. We'll see. Um, they can't be destroying any of the documents or emails. We knew we found out about that from uh, what happened with Dalton McGinn's yeah. staff and the whole uh, gas plant scandal and the do- destruction of documents. That's illegal. So... Uh, it shouldn't take long if the government cooperates. Right, put your put your legal hat on for a second here, Duff. Uh, if in fact the uh, this is going down the hypothetical road, but if the integrity commissioner does investigates and if he finds there was some wrongdoing, uh, what are the ramifications of that? Well, the integrity commissioner can only recommend a penalty, which is a flaw, uh, because then the recommendation goes back to the legislature, which has a majority of conservatives, and they would actually decide whether the premier or anyone else. Uh, covered by the law uh, would face any penalty. But the uh, at least the Integrity Commissioner can do that recommendation. And Democracy Watch's position is the recommendation should be that if Doug Ford was involved, uh, he should lose his seat. Because, again, this is such a fundamental issue of whether we have a democracy or a police state, that there has to be a separation from the cabinet, from the ruling party, and the top cop in the province. The, the law enforcement has to be done on the basis of evidence and the rules, 
not at all influenced by politics. And with this situation, it's already dangerous that they've appointed the top cop who's a close friend of the premier. But if he was involved in that appointment at all, he should lose his seat. That should be the recommendation from the Integrity Commissioner. That's how serious this situation is. But again, as you just said, that, that goes back to the legislature, which is uh, obviously dominated by the PC. So uh, the chances of that happening are pretty slim. Uh, yes, but at least very politically costly for them to protect their premier in such a situation when you have the independent watchdog who's called the Integrity Commissioner saying, you know, this is the kind of penalty that's needed for this kind of situation. And if they turn that away completely and just say, oh, we'll just reprimand the premier, then they're showing that they'll, they'll protect him from anything, even uh, one of the worst actions that you could do as, as a cabinet minister, uh, actually being involved in appointing the head of law enforcement for the province. Well, uh, this is what government for the people looks like, I guess. Government for his people. Well, there's that, yeah. Uh, we'll follow this. Hopefully we'll get some uh, response from the Integrity Commissioner uh, soon. Duff, thanks so much for the time today, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Duff Conacher, of course, I co-founder of Democracy Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How did Michael Flynn help the Russia investigation? Well, uh, if you were hoping the sentencing report that came, came out yesterday was going to help, uh, you're not going to get a whole lot of information. Most of it was redacted. But apparently he helped enough that the special counsel, that being Robert Mueller, uh, says that Flynn should be spared any prison time. So what comes of this? What are the ramifications and what happens going forward? Pleased to welcome Dr. Anthony Neal from the Department of Political Science at uh, Buffalo State College back to the program to talk about this. Anthony, so good of you to come on. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks, Bill. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. As I say, anybody trying to read this report, Anthony, is, is going to be very frustrated by this. There's not a whole lot of information here, is there? Well, it seems like uh, the report came out and a lot of people are somewhat deflated. I think uh, uh, a lot of people are just waiting for the, the hammer to fall. It's something, you know, dramatic and uh, earth-shaking to happen, but it seems like that's not Robert Mueller's style. Or perhaps following the law doesn't require that at the moment. Well, that's, I guess, one of the reasons why people had high expectations and maybe why they were dashed, though, Anthony, because this was a sentencing report. This is not Mueller's report on the investigation at all. This is really, right, right. Just, a, this is really just a clarification as to what, uh, what Mueller or what uh, Flynn meant to the investigation, and it was a significant yeah. contribution, apparently. Yeah, procedural uh, issue regarding uh, his contribution, and I think no, honestly, I think a lot of people have forgotten about Michael Flynn since he was like one of the early ones uh, that Mueller pulled into his camp. And, and like I stated, um, there haven't been many leaks or any leaks to what's going on, so people don't know what's happening to actually happens. And uh, like you stated, it was a report. It's not the actual, the, the total investigation. But And it seems like if you look at the player's, uh, that Mueller is uh, dealing with, particularly Cohen and Flynn, these are people who were essentially like uh, Trump's left-hand and right-hand uh, men, very close to the president, even though he tries to distance himself after they uh, were uh, found themselves in trouble. And, and, and it seems awkward that all these people you know, are in this type of trouble, and they're in this trouble because of dealing with Trump. So it, it seems like uh, there will be something extremely significant related to the president to come out when it actually comes out. 
Let me ask you about timing on this. This this sentencing report came out, and as we said, the the one that was released to the public is redacted, but the ones that, of course, was released to officials is, has all that information in it. Now, this morning, we found out that a number of attorney generals, state attorney generals, have applied, uh, subpoenaed, rather, Trump's uh, tax records. Uh, is there a connection there? I can't say for sure if there, if there is an actual connection, but I know that one way people are trying to protect the investigation is to fan it out or to farm it out in the event that the president tries to do something uh, with the Mueller investigation that it would be so far flung that he may essentially stop Mueller, but he will not uh, stop the investigation. And also, you know, the timing of the sentencing report, uh, uh, Flynn is due to be sentenced next, I mean, uh, later this month on the 18th. So, uh, I think that was more the issue in terms of what's going on than the state attorney generals. Yeah, I know well, New York, New York State in particular, wants to get its hands on mm-hmm. on Trump in particular. Well, and it's interesting that, as you mentioned, the fact that they seem to be hiving a lot of this stuff off to state uh, attorneys general, because uh, obviously Trump cannot involve himself in that. He has no jurisdiction over over what right, the states only are the doing. Federal, yeah, yeah. yeah so and. Uh, now, how that's going to work out, we don't know. But there was an interesting part of the report that did not get redacted that I found was interesting, and it's raised an awful lot of questions. Uh, Flynn appeared 19 times at uh, interviews with uh, not just Mueller, but obviously some of the lawyers that were involved in this. Uh, they say that he was so helpful, the special counsel's office says he should not have to do any jail time. Uh, they said he was helpful on two particular matters. Uh, obviously, the uh, the investigation into Russian interference but more importantly, the one that raised a few eyebrows uh, it was an unspecified criminal investigation, uh, which is not the same. They say this is a parallel investigation. Did that surprise you? That one surprised me and also raised a lot of eyebrows uh, and curiosity to uh, ask what that is, particularly going in the criminal realm. I, I, I think the, the this particular investigation is so it's unlike any we've seen before. It's so wide. Uh, and so far flung that uh, if, unless you're actually in the midst of it, we can't quite conceive of essentially what's going on. And the, even the attempts you know, to interfere with the election was so unprecedented that it's going to take an unprecedented investigation to uncover the many layers of uh, what actually transpired. And so I think we're, we're looking for normality or normal. <laughs> report or normal reporting, but I, I think things are so abnormal that that it's just going to blow our minds when the final uh, narrative comes out. Well, what's done, that, that particular phrase, Anthony, about an unspecified criminal investigation, I think it's whetted a lot of people's appetites to figure, okay, what does he know? Because as you say, there are no leaks coming out of uh, Mueller's team at all. Uh, there's lots of speculation. But you know, when we see redacted reports and, and, and little to no information coming out from Mueller itself, you wonder, what has he found? And we don't even know what tools he has at this stage, do we? No, and it's also to rec- recommend no jail time is extremely generous. It makes you think that uh, Flynn, from day one, <laughs> uh, essentially jumped onto the uh, Mueller bandwagon or Mueller, Mueller camp and decided just to, just to, to cooperate fully to the fullest extent. Well, I know he's a, a, a re- prior to Trump, he was a registered Democrat. And I, I think his uh, aversion to the Obama administration drove him into the Trump camp, and perhaps he was 
had a change of heart since uh, all this has transpired. Yeah, the uh, the Mueller report here on sentencing does suggest, though, that because of his uh, illustrious uh, diplomatic and military record, uh, I guess the, I'll paraphrase here, basically Flynn should have known better than to get involved. So obviously, uh, although the report doesn't detail exactly Flynn's involvement here, he got his hands dirty. That's pretty obvious. Yeah, and it seems uh, like to say that we can only speculate and, and make inferences, and the inferences that I received was that of someone who was you know, really uh, sorrowful what the, for what they had done, probably like I said, I think his opposition to the Obama administration sent him over on the deep end and uh, perhaps a little greed as well. You know, when you start waving hundreds of thousand dollars in someone's face, sometimes that can be a, a major tempter as well. They also talk about uh, Flynn's uh, information, uh, including interactions between individuals in the presidential transition team and Russia. Uh, which heretofore, of course, Trump had denied that there was any kind of connection at all, but it seems pretty obvious that there is some connection. We just don't know how extensive and, and what was actually involved. Well, 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 the way I look at it is, even at the time that Trump was making these denials, there was a certain sector of society that not even involved him investigating that didn't believe him. It says that we don't have, didn't have the tools or whatever to, to prove it. We just didn't believe him. It didn't seem logical how, based on history and and your your desire to be friends with Putin dating uh, way back, uh, it just didn't seem logical that you had no dealings, no understanding, no interaction whatsoever with the Russians. Well, especially when you look at the fact that now we know that he did have discussions about building a hotel in Moscow, and uh, we have heard from people who are well-versed in, in, in Russian-United States relations, uh, especially with uh, over on the other side, that you don't do anything like that unless you've got some help from the government. It just It's not done that way. This is not like a democratic process over in Moscow. It's who you know. And uh, you go to the highest, uh, I guess, echelon when you want to get something done like that. So to suggest that he had no connection and no conversations there is, 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 is well, I think it's ridiculous. But, I mean, at least it, it's questionable. And and with many other uh, untruths that have been uncovered by by this uh, that we've seen through this president, I think the ultimate untruth is going to be, I believe it has a lot to do with uh, collusion with the Russians in regards to the campaign. I mean, that statement that he made during the campaign, Russia, are you listening? Is so so uh, so telling and. And now as we move forward, it places it more and more into context uh, as to what was actually going on during this time. Yeah, and it's, the time frame's interesting, isn't it, Anthony? I, I remember the campaign speech he made where I, I got an idea that there's going to be some big news about Hillary coming out soon. I just got oh, a yeah. feel. That was yeah. the day after. Now we know. That was the day after the Russians met with Trump and Trump Jr. At, in in the Trump Tower. Because and we know that some uh, that Trump uh, having a foreknowledge of something can't keep it to himself, as he reveals top secrets to the uh, to uh, to Russian heads of state when they came to visit the yeah. White House about Israel. So he can't keep it to himself. So uh, it, it seems quite obvious that we can infer that he had some type foreknowledge or belief, anyway, that something was coming. And I think perhaps. Uh, Michael Flynn was putting it in his ear. His son was putting it in his ear. Or someone was putting it in his ear that uh, the Russians are cooperating, and we we have the goods, we have the information. 
I, I know that uh, the, the president has characterized this as a witch hunt time and time again, and so have a number of his minions. Uh, but the reality here is that there have been, what, 75 indictments so far, Anthony? And I, I think it's about eight, up to eight convictions now. And uh, time and time again, person after person pleading guilty, essentially pleading guilty without a major fight. I think Manafort is the only one who's holding out hope that he's going to get a pardon from uh, Donald Trump. Therefore, he's has been non-cooperative, but I think his sentencing report is going to be quite different from Flynn's sentencing report uh, when it def- when it comes out. I, I know I saw one of the Fox commentators a week or so ago that was being dismissive of this and saying, yeah, what even the convictions? They're, most of them are just for people who lied to the committee or lied to, to Congress or whatever. So, so what's the big deal? Uh, the overriding question, I guess, is why are so many people lying? What are they hiding? And who are they trying to protect? And, that, and, and uh, that's the question that's asked about the report, too. It's quite, we, we, we know that people have lied, but I think the why is what's going to eventually come out and what the ultimate aspect of that people uh, were trying to hide or did not want to come to the fore. Because you had so many different individuals and so many different connections to the Russian, but they all lied about it up front initially. Uh, including the president, that something that was something significant there that that needed to be, or they believed needed to be hidden, probably did need to be hidden. And the, and one other thing that Mueller knows so much more than any of the rest of us know, and they're running. I'm impressed with the uh, tight ship that they're running in terms of. It's very difficult to keep something from from leaking in Washington D.C., but for, for whatever reason, they're doing an excellent job of holding everything close to the vest. Just uh, let's crystal ball for a second here, Anthony. Is Mueller going to be allowed to finish his work here? Uh, as I was watching uh, President Bush uh, Sr. being uh, taken over to the uh, to, to uh, the Capitol building uh, the other day for uh, the, the public viewing, uh, I, as the dignitaries were there, there was Paul Ryan, there was Mitch McConnell, and I saw Matt Whitaker, who was the acting attorney general over there, with this uh, rather ominous look on his face like he always does. There are those that feel as if he was appointed to that acting role simply to be the hatchet man in this investigation, uh, either to outright let Miller go or to at least, you know, he's the guy who has to sign off on any other subpoenas. And if he says no, Mueller's hands are tied. I believe he was put in that position. However, I believe as fate would have it, if we want to trust it to say the death of George H.W. Bush somehow may be reminding people of what the Republican Party used to be, or what it used to be about. And maybe some Republicans will come to their senses and start to realize that this is not a partisan issue and that we can't, or that they cannot simply rubber stamp or allow this to proceed and, and say that they are doing the best, what's in the best interest of the country. So that might be a reminder to some that you know, wake up, uh, look at what you've done, and it's time to come on board now and hold the president, make the president accountable. You know, Anthony, I'd like to think that you're right, but I, we had the same feeling, I think, at the John McCain funeral, and we saw evidence of that, but it lasted about 24 hours. So, But that's Washington, yeah, I isn't thought, it? I thought, about, I thought about the, you know, just opposing the two, McCain and Bush. The only difference I could come up with is Bush actually was a president, that he actually served. Uh, as president, and and for for that reason, uh, in fact, that he lost, and when he first lost the uh, you know his uh, the second uh, election, 
he was counted as a loser, but in hindsight, and looking back on it now, people are saying, oh, now we get it, what George Bush was all about uh, in that respect. And, and for that reason, and with the funeral today, with, with that reason, I believe some would, can be persuaded to stop being so partisan uh, in that respect. That would be refreshing. Uh, Dr. Anthony and, Neal. And trying to defend the indefensible, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anthony, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. All right, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. Dr. Anthony Neal from, uh, of course, Buffalo State College. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.